uh, welcome back to another podcast hosted by Exercises Medicine at UC San Diego, where we are all about um, raising awareness about exercise for health and well-being, um, along with promoting professional development in the diverse careers of sports medicine. And just a little disclaimer before we start, we are not a medical or, or fitness professionals, and the information that we discuss today is just for entertainment purposes, and as such is not to be misconstrued as medical advice. And Catherine and I are the um, professional development coordinators at Exercises Medicine, and we will be hosting today's information, informational interview. And um, we are so happy to introduce Dr. Rebecca Cunningham today, um, a current occupational therapist at USC to our podcast today. And um, thank you for coming today. Um, yeah. Can you please um, introduce yourself and tell, us, tell our listeners a little bit about your um, professional experience? Sure. Yes. Thank you, Daniel and Catherine, for inviting me and having me on the podcast today. Um, so as you mentioned, my name is Rebecca Cunningham. I'm an occupational therapist and clinical faculty member in the Mrs. T.H. Chan Division of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of Southern California. So even though I'm a faculty member, the bulk of my time day to day is spent um, as a treating clinician. So I work at the OT faculty practice, with this how which is housed within the OT division at USC where I provide lifestyle redesign-based services to individuals in the LA uh, County, Ventura County, Orange County, and now really all over the state because of COVID-19 and our transition to telehealth services. I really see a lot of people from over California. Um, but most of my work is focused on providing lifestyle redesign services to individuals who have neurological conditions, uh, including multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, epilepsy, individuals who are post-stroke and other functional neurological conditions. So, um, but I'm truly, I think my passion really lies in working with the MS population and really trying to expand our services to support that community. Wow. And so wow. the transition to telehealth has definitely helped that expansion for sure? Or? Yeah. So we transitioned, we've, at our clinic, we have always offered telehealth services. However, uh, third-party payers or PPO, health insurance plans and Medicare plans, um, that once covered those services really dropped off in their reimbursement for those services starting, I want to say in like 2017, 2018. And so even though we've always offered it, we had to transition those services to private pay options. But since COVID-19 started, um, we transitioned to 100% telehealth, I think March 16th or 17th of this year. So I've been at home for like eight months now. Um, and And all of the health insurance companies are reimbursing right now for telehealth OT-based services. So initially, I think there were a lot of individuals who were a little hesitant to start OT, like in March and April, because we all assumed that we were going to be going back into person or back to in-person services in relatively short order. But as the stay-at-home order con uh, continued and we really settled in to working 100% from home, we saw our caseloads really rebound. And now I would say that I'm busier more than I am when we are in person because there's lower cancellation rates. And a lot of the clients that I work with have chronic pain and chronic fatigue. And so traveling back and forth to the clinic can be really challenging for them to do on a, like, on a weekly basis. So all of a sudden clients that I was really only seeing maybe once every two or three weeks or once a month can be more consistent in their attendance of appointments. Um, and without exacerbating their symptoms. So I think it's been really helpful in terms of increasing consistency of care, but also increasing accessibility to our lifestyle redesign OT services all across the state. Wow. That seems like wow. a very useful transition. 
Mm-hmm. Do you think yeah. that you personally, I guess after like working uh, through telehealth for like seven, eight months now, do you find that you prefer that or do you prefer still like in-person uh, interaction? Good question. Um, I think that there's a lot about telehealth that I like um, and working, and there's a lot about working from home that I like, like I'm sleeping more than I was when I had to commute <laughs> to work and like I can exercise more. And I think I acknowledge that it's really beneficial, the telehealth platform for a lot of my clients because of their chronic fatigue. So I value that. However, I do miss seeing my clients in person and being able to connect with them in that way. And also being able to connect with my colleagues every day, because there's a lot of informal kind of interactions that happen around the clinic where we're touching base with each other, or asking questions or having informal mentorship meetings. And those just don't happen as much as they used to. So while I really value this opportunity and the silver lining of COVID-19 that has come, that has presented itself, um, I do miss being in clinic. So hopefully moving forward, we'll be able to still advocate for access and reimbursement for telehealth services for OT. Um, And maybe there'll be a blended model of in-person and telehealth moving forward, who knows? Oh, wow. (laughs) Sounds like so hectic, but um, um, yeah. And I remember um, you just mentioned that um, since you've been at home more that you've been um, exercising a lot more. So uh, I was just wondering, how have you been exercising at home and how have you been taking care of your well-being, especially during quarantine and COVID? Yeah, that's a really good question, especially because I live by myself. Um, and I actually, I'll share that I have a chronic condition. So a lot of my work is based around chronic condition self-management and I happen to have one. So most of the exercise that I do is more moderate intensity as opposed to vigorous intensity exercise, because it's just something that vigorous intensity is hard for my body to kind of withstand and handle. So most of my exercise is going for walks, you know, like three to five miles, um, stretching, doing some yoga to the degree that the joints that are impacted by my condition can kind of handle it. So I have kind of a blended approach, but I really do enjoy going for walks and hiking. Oh, I see. And um, have you incorporated exercise into your practice as well in in any way? Or have you encouraged your patients to go on exercise to improve their health or anything like that? Absolutely. So the type of OT that I practice is lifestyle redesign. So our focus is really helping individuals to integrate health promoting behaviors into their existing habits and routines in order to improve their functional performance, to improve their uh, quality of life and well-being, and also to improve the management of whatever chronic condition that they may have. And so one of the big areas of lifestyle that we do address is exercise, because we know exercise is important for the management of chronic conditions, especially for many of the chronic conditions that I work with that are neurological in nature. So yes, so we've had to talk about exercise in a little bit of a different way because of COVID-19 and not having access to like gym contexts or environments, but really coming up with something that's sustainable for their home environment that they're still gonna feel satisfied with and helping them to feel motivated to still engage in that really meaningful activity and one that is important for their health as well. Oh, I see. So you'd say that um, incorporating exercise into occupational therapy is like very important because Whenever I think of exercise, I think of more um, physical therapy, not really mm-hmm. OT, but yeah. Yeah, and I think obviously PTs and OTs, we work together quite a lot. We're on mm-hmm. multidisciplinary teams together. Depending on the site that you work at, you might co-treat 
with a physical therapist. Um, when thinking about OT, um, I'm not sure how much uh, your audience members know about occupational therapy, but we really are looking at any activity that is meaningful and important to the individual, right? And we're trying to help them participate in those activities to the best of their ability, despite whatever illness, injury, post-surgery, chronic condition they may have. And so while yes, uh, the name of our discipline is occupational therapy, we do look beyond work. So our use of the word occupation is really any activity that meaningfully occupies our time. And so exercise can certainly fall within that scope of OT and what we can address because as we, as we know, exercise is very important. It's something that we should be doing and often individuals need to be doing more of in order to be as healthy as possible. And like Daniel said, I guess uh, sometimes when I think of OT, I also think of PT just because, you know, like you said, they do often work together. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering what pushed you towards OT rather than, you know, another career like, like PT? Yeah. And I think initially I was considering physical therapy because I had received PT services when I was in high school after I uh, had an ACL reconstruction surgery. Um, I was an athlete and but I, during my undergrad at UC San Diego was a psych major and I loved, I just fell in love with psychology and I was a human development minor. And after kind of comparing OT and PT, I realized that OT is a more holistic discipline um, and field that really paired nicely, like my own history of being an athlete and wanting to be physically engaged and active and wanting to focus on functional and physical performance while still viewing someone's mental health, their psychosocial factors, their emotional well-being is equally or even more important. So OT really looks at an individual with a very holistic lens um, that encompasses a lot of different things. And so it's a much more kind of top-down approach compared to physical therapy. So that's what ended up kind of moving my trajectory, my career trajectory more towards OT. So you still find that perhaps um, sometimes in your work you use like, or you draw upon your psychology degree and you use some of that education? Absolutely. Especially because the psych major at UCSD, or at least the time that I was at UC San Diego, um, had a lot of neuroscience-based classes, um, especially taught by Dr. Ramachandran, who I'm not sure whether he's still there or not in the department. Um, but so I still feel like I draw on a lot of that education um, from my past. And I think that it's been helpful in terms of doing the work that I do now, because so much of what I do is trying to motivate individuals to make changes to their day to day. And as humans, change can be hard and we need the right motivation and the right understanding of why these changes are gonna be beneficial to make them happen. And so in order to do that, you need to really understand like the emotional needs and the psychological needs of the individual. Well, really it's interesting. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> what were you going to say, Catherine? Sorry. Oh, I said, Dr. Cunningham, you're really, you're really selling OT to me because I've definitely oh, been yeah. <laughs> 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 talking about all this and using psychology and really mm -hmm. about, like the holistic view. I, I yeah. really like that approach. Yeah. That's actually really interesting that you mentioned the holistic approach because I'm currently on the PT track right now and I didn't know that OT was more holistic, but like, I didn't know that, I, like, as an OT would draw upon, like, your psych degree and all these different aspects and sociocultural factors and everything. So, mm -hmm. 
which is actually like pretty interesting. I didn't expect that at all. But yeah, and not to like hate on my PT peers or colleagues or anything like that <laughs> or the the PT field. It's a very important field to go into. Um, but from my perspective and what really drives me and what I was really looking for in a career and kind of a purpose, OT was just more in alignment with my educational background and the things that really interest me and drive me on a day-to-day basis. Oh, I see. That's well, great, really, yeah. Says, like find a career, you know, that you really love and you enjoy. That's not just about money. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just a clock in clock out. I mean, don't get me wrong. Everybody has their days where it feels like a clock in clock out day for whatever reason, but I feel like I don't have as many of those, which is nice. Oh, I see. Um, and kind of branching it to a different um, question. Um, as an occupational therapist, do you have any memorable experiences during your time? Have you ever interacted with like meaningful patients or anything of the sort? I feel like every client that I work with is meaningful in their own way. Um, I love the clients that I work with. I love helping them make progress and seeing them feel successful. I think that's one of the most meaningful things about the work that I do, especially when they start to be able to tell me like, yeah, I have chronic fatigue, but I'm doing more than I ever have before. And I'm not feeling terrible as a result of it. Or I had one client in particular who really loved music festivals and she had um, a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, which left her with lots of fatigue, a lot of heat, well, for her really heat intolerance, as well as some pain related symptoms. And we really did a pretty thorough job of analyzing her preferred occupation of going to music festivals. So we could try to reduce her overexertion risk and the amount of like symptom exacerbation she was experiencing after the fact. And that really helped her to feel more empowered and confident in going into that context and knowing what she could do to still participate to the degree that she wanted to, but not feel like trash afterwards for like a week. So that, I I mean, those are the types of experiences that are really valuable and meaningful to me Mm -hmm. are when we can really do a lot of problem solving together to come up with solutions that are going to help them to engage in these activities that, that really they derive a lot of meaning from because yes, work and school and those things are important to us and we can derive a lot of meaning, but oftentimes it's the activities that fall outside of those work and school contexts that we do derive the most meaning from because they are self-selected. And so those are the things that I really want to help my clients to be able to engage in successfully. Oh, I see. Well, it sounds like very fulfilling, like a very fulfilling occupation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also some similar reason why I wanted to go to PTOT is because of that fulfilling aspect, like mm-hmm. just like helping a patient just um, get back to like where they were mm-hmm. um, before their injury. It's incredibly or meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And um, also you mentioned a little bit just about um, your day-to-day actions, but I was just wondering, um, what does a usual day on the job look like for you as an OT? Yeah. So it, it kind of looks different from day to day. So because as a faculty member, I, yes, I am primarily a treating clinician, but I also have other obligations because I'm in academia and I'm a faculty member. So the bulk of my day is spent seeing clients. So usually I see somewhere between five to seven clients per day because our sessions are usually 50 to 60 minutes in duration. So that's usually pretty consecutive back to back. And then when I'm not with clients, I'm usually mentoring students. Some semesters I do teach classes. And then I also do, or I'm a part of different 
multidisciplinary teams within the CAC medical system. So if I'm not with clients, then I'm usually interacting with other healthcare providers or attending meetings that help support those community members and treating them from, again, a holistic perspective and a comprehensive perspective. So they're receiving all of their healthcare needs um, in order to treat their diagnosis. So my days look different, um, but most of my time is spent with clients. Oh, I see. And um, just curious, to become a, a professor, did you have to get like a separate degree for that? Or could you just like, with your OT degree, could you also become a professor as well at UFC? Good question. So the entry level degree right now for occupational therapy is a master's. Whereas for physical therapists, it's their doctorate, their clinical doctorate. Mm -hmm. So because we're still a master's <clears throat> entry level, the master's degree alone usually is not enough to teach at um, a faculty level in, a, in an ACOAT OT accredited program. I believe with the master's, you could teach at an OT assistant program level mm -hmm. because those are either associate's degrees or bachelor's degrees. So because I wanted to teach at the OT graduate degree level, I then needed a doctorate in order to do that. Mm -hmm. So for OT, you can get, there are different options. So you can do a post-professional doctorate, which is usually a one-year program. And, or you can do an entry level doctorate. So even though the entry, like technically the entry level degree for OT is masters, there are more and more entry level doctorate programs that are starting to be developed because like PT did, we potentially may go to an entry level doctorate degree for occupational therapy, but we're not there yet. So what I ended up doing is getting my master's at USC and then doing the one year post-professional doctorate that USC offers. So that's why I am Dr. Cunningham. Oh, I see. But um, since a physical therapy degree is a doctorate, they can probably just become a professor as well, like right off the bat or? Mm -hmm. Oh, I yeah. see. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now most um, OT programs usually prefer that their faculty members have five years of experience treating before mm -hmm. they become faculty. That's usually a typical requirement for the hiring process. Uh, but because I was being hired as a clinical faculty member and I'm spending the bulk of my time treating, mm -hmm. I didn't have to wait for that five years to elapse. Oh, I see. Because they're really, for like true educational teaching faculty, those mm -hmm. are the individuals that really need five years of clinical work before they mm -hmm. get hired on. But I spend the bulk of my time mm -hmm. treating patients and I occasionally teach or guest lecture. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Because I've also been kind of considering like, I want to like, I'm interested in teaching as well. So I want to like somehow like balance it to like treat patients and also um, like educate students. So that's actually yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And most, or sorry, sorry, Catherine, most um, OT and PT programs, um, I don't want to say all, but most have like these faculty practices, like the clinic that I work at, so that they do have clinical faculty as opposed to just research and education faculty. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are opportunities out there for that. What exactly pushed you to want to become a doctor and to get into teaching since you love working with uh, clients so much? Yeah, so I was really inspired by the educators that I was exposed to at USC through going through the master's program. And I had the opportunity to be a classroom assistant for the, the years after me, students during their first summer experience and I really loved it. 
Like I, I, I did it because I wanted to have the experience, not knowing that I was going to love it as much as I did. And so from that moment, my goal was to become an educator at an academic, at a faculty level at some point. And I knew that in order to do that, I would need the doctorate. So I still felt strongly about being a treating clinician, but I knew long-term I would likely want to enter into academia at some point and teach. Um, and the, the faculty, the teaching faculty at USC are just exceptional and they just were very inspiring. So that I think those were the experiences that really pushed me towards doing the OTD or the post-professional doctorate um, and looking at being a faculty member long-term. Glad you're on such a like a great team that you're talking about at USC. That yeah. sounds really valuable. I love them. I wouldn't have stayed on as faculty and be doing the work that I'm doing if I didn't believe in the people that work in the department. Is that why you chose to stay working at USC? Because you wanted to work with that team or were you ever considering like working at, you know, any university? I went into my post-professional doctorate and residency experience knowing that I wanted to stay. So I worked my tail off for that year <laughs> um, so that I was indispensable and that they wouldn't be able to let me go basically um, <laughs> because I wanted to stay. I really wanted to stay badly uh, because I loved the clinical work that I was getting to do. And I wanted to have an opportunity to enter into academia and be a faculty member and eventually teach one day. And I thought that you know, just from a pragmatist perspective, that was going to be my best route to doing that. And obviously I love the lifestyle redesign work that I do and the team that I work with at the clinic and as well as the whole department. So honestly, I never really considered looking at other academic appointments. I really wanted to stay at USC. And so you talk about doing so much like in terms of schooling and in terms of, you know, working now. Do you ever feel that you get overwhelmed or is that, is it very manageable as an OT as also as an assistant professor? I think everybody, it, when you're a faculty member, because you're getting pulled in so many different directions and you are required basically to be pulled in so many different directions, I'd be lying if I said I never got overwhelmed. I think every faculty member does. It's just learning to like be okay with that and kind of sit in it and recognize that I'm not. I'm okay. It's not going to kill me. Like I'm still going to get all these things done. I just have a lot of, you know, plates that I'm trying to keep up in the air, <clears throat> but at that with good time management and me keeping my health in mind that I'm going to be able to get all of those things done. So of course there are points, especially in this past year with COVID-19 and the changes that we had to make to, <clears throat> excuse me, the master's level curriculum. I ended up teaching during the summer when that was not my plan for the year to do that and teaching a class that I had never taught before. So it was, you know, there's always moments when we're going to be pushed to take on things that we didn't anticipate, but are going to be good, meaningful, positive opportunities for career growth and development. And so it's worthwhile feeling overwhelmed temporarily in order to make that next step or have that achievement on your CV, your resume, et cetera. Can I just say I'm feeling so inspired right now to like go find <laughs> and go find new things and get them done. Well, good. That was my hope by agreeing to do this. I I obviously feel very strongly about the field of occupational therapy and what I do, and I think most people know what physical therapy is and they have a very clear idea and understanding of it. And occupational therapy often feels more nebulous, 
most of the time, the clients that I'm working with have no idea what OT is. And they're like, yeah, my doctor just told me I need to come see you. Um, and so <laughs> I feel like it's important to really help and educate and advocate for OT services all over the country, all over the world, and help people to understand what OT has to offer to them, either as a recipient or as a provider of care. Oh, wow. Um, and um, you mentioned just a little bit about, you know, your professional um, career path, how you um, ended up to the point where you are. So um, I was just wondering if you can go a little bit more in depth in your educational career. And um, if um, and what opportunities you might have might have taken advantage advantage of um, while you're at undergrad at UCSD? Oh, good question. So I started at UC San Diego in 2004. I was a sixth college student, and I came in knowing I wanted to do my undergrad in psychology. And I think it was probably my junior year. I decided to take on a human development minor because I think it was a nice compliment to the psychology degree. And I, I felt at that time that it would help me get to where I wanted to be. Now, going into my undergrad, I didn't know that I wanted to be an occupational therapist. I thought I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And then I did an internship where I shadowed a clinical psychologist and I was like, oh no, I don't wanna do this. Um, and so I had to really like reconsider my trajectory. And a friend of mine who was also a sixth college student in the same year, she had I don't even remember how she found out about OT, but she told me about it. And then I started doing digging and really by the end of college realized like, okay, that's what I want to do. Um, but some of the experiences that, that I think were really meaningful to me during my time at UC San Diego were working in one of the psychology labs as a, an undergraduate research assistant. Uh, it was the developmental neuroscience lab led by Leslie Carver, who I believe is, has a higher position now in Marshall College. Catherine, is, is the name familiar? Okay, yeah. I thought she was provost, but I didn't want to be incorrect. Shout out to <laughs> Leslie, she's great. Um, so she was the first boss that I ever had. And so I think taking on the undergraduate research assistant position in her lab was one of the most, like the best things that I ever did during my undergrad because it exposed me to research. And I think that was helpful for becoming faculty long-term, um, but also, it got me comfortable. I was a very shy, introverted kid, and I still am an introvert by nature. I can be extroverted when necessary, but that was something I learned while working for her um, during my undergrad. And then also I worked for her for like four and a half years after I graduated as the lab coordinator for her lab. And so by taking on that leadership position, I think that really helped me to learn how to like communicate effectively with people, how to train students, how to manage individuals successfully, um, how to manage a lot of subjects coming into the lab on any given day, which certainly is relevant to what I do now. Obviously I'm not doing research, but managing a caseload is very similar. And so I think joining that lab as an undergrad was one of the most meaningful, important decisions that I ever made. Even though you know I didn't end up going to research, I learned a lot and developed a lot of skills that are benefiting me now as an occupational therapist, especially because lifestyle redesign is basically me talking to my client. So learning how to communicate effectively and taking on leadership roles in that lab were critical to being where I am today. Leslie, you were great. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie was a great boss. 
And so you mentioned that, you know, you learned communication through that research position. And I also know that you mentioned uh, problem solving when you were talking about, you know, the case study with the client who really liked festivals. Mm -hmm. Are there any other, like, I guess, defining characteristics or skill sets that, that you think uh, potential OTs maybe should try to obtain or should maybe they already have that, like anything like that? Yeah, problem solving, really important. Being able to communicate effectively, really important. Um, being creative. I feel like creativity is one of the traits or really not a trait. Creativity can be learned. It's a skill. So being creative is important as an occupational therapist, especially because so often beyond kind of our regular activities of daily living, like bathing, toileting, um, being able to dress ourselves and our instrumental activities of daily living, like cooking, cleaning, going grocery shopping, et cetera, the leisure activities that individuals bring up, we often need to be very creative in how we're going to help them engage in those activities. And so creativity is a really important skill to have as an OT. Now, I don't mean creativity in the sense of being able to produce art per se, but being able to be creative within the confines of a treatment session, I think is important. Um, and then I think being able to advocate for oneself. I, I think that's important regardless of whether you go into the field of OT or not, but I think it's particularly important when you're going into a healthcare field uh, especially as an allied health professional, because being able to advocate and communicate effectively is what helps you to have a seat at the table, especially on interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary teams and trying to increase service lines for different populations and building relationships with referring providers. Um, advocacy and communication skills are like, I often think those are the most important things that we need as OTs and as PTs. Um, and then being flexible, right? Um, because often when we're going into a treatment session with a client, we have an idea of what we're going to do, but so often we have to deviate from that plan because of how the individual is feeling that day, what happened on their commute to the clinic, what's going on with their family or at work. And sometimes we just have to scrap the plan that we came up with and pivot and come up with something else in that moment. And so being flexible and creative is really helpful in meeting the patient where they're at so that you're successfully providing a meaningful intervention and treatment session for them. Talk about thinking on your toes or... Yeah. Yes, there's a Would lot of say... that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Would you say the same characteristic applies to PT as well, that they have to be very on their feet and um, like some unexpectancies might happen? Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it's a little different with PT, right? Because you're doing exercises with them in the mm -hmm. clinic. So yeah. there's probably a more protocol based approach to things. But again, based on how the patient walks into clinic that day, they may or may not be up for doing 10 minutes on the treadmill mm -hmm. or doing that new balance exercise that you are planning on integrating into the plan of care, because mm -hmm. maybe they're in more pain that day, or maybe their dizziness is worse. And so trying something new, to challenge their vestibular system might not be in their best interest for that moment because they're still going to have to go home and mm -hmm. go through the rest of their day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. So being able to pivot and think on your feet and be flexible is important, whether you're a PT or an OT, we're just tending to do it kind of in different ways. Oh, that's I a see. really good question. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that about um, OT and PT, but yeah, that's something to think about later. Um, 
And um, sort of branching off into another question, I was wondering if um, you have any advice for current undergrads that are wanting to go into OT and um, what advice would you give them? And yeah. Yeah, so I would encourage you to do informational interviews with occupational therapists or faculty members that who are a part of OT programs so that you can get a sense of what is the breadth and depth and scope of the field. Because typically when people think about OT, they think about hospital-based OT, like someone had a surgery, um, whether it's like a knee replacement or hip replacement, and we're making sure that they can like bathe themselves, dress themselves, toilet successfully without breaking their precautions, right? Um, and that is, that is a huge part of what OT is. But there are so many other avenues and practice areas for OTs to be a part of. So I think doing informational interviews are important so that you understand the breadth and scope. And then getting your observation or shadowing hours in. Because most OT programs require them. And some OT programs require like 100 hours of volunteer observation. Some only require 20 or 30. But I think it's really still helpful, regardless of what the hour duration is for a program, to do your homework, have opportunities to see OT at work in practice so that you get a, a, an idea of what it looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. I think those are really meaningful experiences to have. My volunteering or I, well, where did I? I did them through UC San Diego. I observed an inpatient hospital-based OT at Hillcrest Medical Center. And then I um, shadowed at the outpatient clinic in La Jolla, or it was there at the time, and observed two occupational therapists who specialized in hand therapy. Um, because I felt like I'd worked with kids a lot during my actual job um, at the developmental neuroscience lab. So I wanted to have exposure to, you know, different styles, but, and hand therapy and outpatient peds and inpatient hospital tend to be the most common observation sites, but there are so many more different sites and opportunities that individuals can have observational, observational or shadowing hours um, to complete. That was not grammatically correct, what I just said, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, um, I work, or I volunteer at a PT clinic um, in La Jolla right now. I, it's, I believe it's Komen Outpatient Pavilion. And yeah, I sometimes I see um, OTs working and most of the time it's like, uh, I believe they're like- Upper extremity. Yeah. And so I definitely get exposed to that, but you're saying that you did way more and that you volunteered here and there. And, <laughs> Experiences. And not that you have to do as much as I did. Um, like I was saying, some programs only require 30 hours. So you do that, you know, check the box and you're done. Um, I wanted to have more experiences and more shadowing opportunities and challenge my assumptions about the field. And also understanding that most likely during my master's degree work, I was going to have to enter into some of those spaces. Um, because the USC program, you have different practice area immersions, mental health, adult rehabilitation, and pediatrics. And the adult rehabilitation immersion was what I was kind of the most anxious about because I don't like hospitals. Um, so I intentionally chose to shadow an inpatient hospital-based OT to kind of get over that. Um, and speaking of the question that you were asking earlier about like, things that really come to mind and stand out. Like the first day that I went and shadowed in the inpatient hospital, almost fainted. <laughs> you did? 
Yeah, I almost fainted. I didn't faint completely. Um, but like I was getting tunnel vision and I was very close to like blacking out. Um, so it meant a lot for me to work through that so that when I got to the program and potentially was going to need to enter into a hospital space during the program, I did not want to be fainting <laughs> during that field work experience. Uh, not the most professional thing in the world. <laughs> Just be fainting while you're at field work. Um, so that was also another reason why I intentionally did more hours was to try to work through the anxieties and some of the discomfort that I had um, about seeing adults in pain struggling um, and in a hospital space where hospital spaces can feel very, patients can feel, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, you're, you're opening yourself up. You're very vulnerable, right? And so I felt that I needed to work through seeing people in vulnerable states like that, which I think was really helpful. Um, that reminds me of like also. how, uh, I guess, I mean, you chose to face your challenge head on, but I know a lot of people, including myself, um, I'm not the best with, you know, blood and needles and all of that. And so I thought, you know, I got to steer away from the hospital, got to steer away from anything, you know, medical related, but I guess you just chose to be like, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go in the hospital and face it head on. And again, very inspiring. I'm just, wow. <laughs> well, I think it's important to come to experiences with a growth mindset, right? We're not always going to be successful. There are going to be moments when we fail. And I think it's important to view those moments from an opportunity perspective or an opportunity for growth so that we can move forward. Because if we limit ourselves and our experiences because we fear something or we fear that we're gonna fail, then we're never gonna grow. And we're gonna become stagnant in terms of our potential school trajectory, career trajectory, life trajectory. And I think something valuable that I've learned from what the last 15, almost 20 years since I've been at UC San Diego is that my goal is to challenge myself and put myself into situations where I'm potentially going to fail and challenge things that I fear because we have to prove to our brains that we're okay and can survive those moments despite our discomfort. Because as I mentioned, I'm an introvert by nature. I can be extroverted and I've learned to be extroverted because that's part of my job. Um, but that took a lot of work <laughs> to get to this point where like, doing this interview with you didn't feel anxiety provoking and speaking at conferences. Don't get me wrong. I still get a little nervous before I speak, but it doesn't give me the same like level of like rash and hives and like, Oh God, I have to speak in front of people. Um, but that took years for me to work through. But if we don't put ourselves into those situations that challenge ourselves, then we're never going to grow. Oh, I see. That's actually very interesting. Um, and, um, yeah, you were mentioning just like about inpatient experience, outpatient experience. So are you um, currently in an outpatient clinic right now or um, are you working in the hospital or um, where are you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, even though my internship helped me to become more comfortable in hospital spaces, like I very clearly learned from that situation that it is not the context for me. Oh, okay. um, so I work in an outpatient clinic. So we are still on the health sciences campus of USC and are still mm -hmm. connected to and part of the tech system, but we are purely outpatient. So oh, I see. Mm -hmm. I'm not seeing anybody at their highest acuity level of inpatient experience. I have colleagues who work in the ICU mm -hmm. and who work in these high acuity departments. Mm -hmm. That was just not going to be for me. So um, 
just curious what do you think is like the biggest like difference between inpatient outpatient like as someone almost um, deciding which um setting to work in um what like kind of characteristic with some an outpatient clinic could have versus inpatient or yeah like just curious. I don't know that there's a difference per se in traits it's just what you enjoy more right mm -hmm. I mean I very clearly was not supposed to be in a hospital space mm -hmm. um because I didn't only just get close to fainting once I got close to fainting like three times um while I was doing my internship um but I um I think it's just where you feel like you thrive in mm -hmm. right where you feel like you feel most at ease and most at ease, not eased, mm -hmm. at ease <laughs> and capable and happy, right? I don't think that there's any difference necessarily in skill mm -hmm. or traits that lend themselves more to inpatient versus outpatient. I think, yeah, if you're like a fainter in a hospital, probably being an inpatient hospital-based clinician is probably not your goal or your route, but even that can be overcome. So I don't know that there's necessarily a difference. It's just what you enjoy more. Mm -hmm. um, now, for me personally, because I have a chronic condition, that was also a reason why I self-selected outpatient because there's a lot of physical demands of being in a hospital, right? Because you're helping people who are requiring more physical assistance at that point. Mm -hmm. So you need, or you're more often helping people with transfers and bed mobility and gait um, and positioning as they're trying to do their ADLs and training mm -hmm. in that area. And so because of my condition, I did not trust my joints that are impacted by my condition to be able to catch somebody if they were going to fall, because there's more safety concerns when you're in a hospital setting, especially if you're in higher acuity level floors or departments like the, the ICU, right? Cause you have all these I don't even know what to call them, but like stuff connected to the people <laughs> that you have to navigate, um, wires, leads, all those different things mm -hmm. um, that you have to navigate while still providing intervention. So there's a higher safety risk in a hospital setting, as well as it's, I would argue that it's more physically demanding mm -hmm. um, than being at like the outpatient clinic that I'm at because lifestyle redesign is more talk based than it is mm -hmm. me like having you do upper extremity exercises. Oh, right. I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So to answer your question, Daniel, I don't think there's like specific traits. It's just what you thrive in and what your own needs are and taking those into consideration when you're selecting uh, a site or a setting that you mm -hmm. want to explore and get into. Okay. Uh, another question regarding, uh, I guess, overall well-being. Do you find that uh, your, uh, your emphasis, you know, in uh, lifestyle redesign, does that ever touch upon uh, patient nutrition? Yes. So I am not a dietitian. I'm not a nutritionist. So I'm not going to provide people with meal plans or dietary plans. My job is to ensure that they are integrating time into their day so that they are eating frequently enough or that they are choosing the right foods that are in, in alignment with whatever they are being recommended from their physician or from their dietitian or nutritionist. So I, you know, am going to help people make those habit and routine changes, but my job is not to be prescriptive with those dietary changes. Got it. So it touches upon, but not, not too like in depth at all. Yeah. Because I'm not a trained dietitian or nutritionist and that's falls without, you know, outside of the scope of my practice. And that's something important as a healthcare provider is to always make sure that you are practicing within your scope of practice. Yeah. 
Good question, though. You've given us so much information. I just, wow, <laughs> my brain is spinning right now, but good spinning. Hopefully in a good way. <laughs> and so I guess before we close out this episode, I wanted to ask, are there any, I guess, parting words that you'd like to have with any um, undergrads or that you'd like to share with any undergrads if they are, you know, specifically looking into OT and maybe feeling intimidated by the whole, you know, the whole education process and all that? Yeah. I mean, it's easy for me to just sit here and say, don't be intimidated. But I guess for those who are feeling intimidated by entering into the realm of OT is to start with small steps, right? Do your research, look at different programs. What are their requirements? What are their prerequisites? How, what is the length and duration of their program? What are the fieldwork experiences? Because that's a big part of OT and PT is your internship and fieldwork experiences before you graduate and then sit for your boards. So it's really, I encourage anyone who is interested in going into OT to really reflect and analyze what they want to get out of it, right? And use that lens to analyze the different OT programs that are not just only in California, but all over the country. Um, and do informational interviews, right? Talk to people, talk to OTs, talk to faculty members who are helping to educate future occupational therapists, learn about the field because the more we learn about it, the less intimidating it can feel, right? Knowledge is power to a degree. So I think shadowing, interviews, looking at your state level OT organizations, looking at the national level OT organization, which is AOTA, the American Occupational Therapy Association, that should help give you more insight into the diversity of what OT can look like. It doesn't have to just look like inpatient hospital, right? Or outpatient peds or school-based peds. There are a lot of emerging practice areas like lifestyle redesign or primary care that are creating new opportunities. And those may even feel less intimidating than working in a hospital. They certainly did for me. So I think that's the best answer that I have to that question. Interviews, volunteer shadow, do your research. That is great advice. Uh, some that Daniel and I will be taking for sure. Right, Daniel? Okay. Definitely, yeah. This, this is very helpful, actually, yeah. <laughs> Good, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you so much for that great advice. Um, and so hopefully all the listeners took note of that. Uh, and so I think we are going to be closing out today's episode, but we want to say a big, big thank you to you, Dr. Rebecca Cunningham. We appreciate it so, so much that you came on and told us all about your career and your professional experience and your pathways and it's just You're most welcome. I'm most happy to join you today. Cool. And so um, again, thank you to Dr. Cunningham and thank you to all the listeners who tuned in. If you would like to learn more about exercises medicine, uh, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram, or you can view our past podcasts on YouTube and I believe Spotify now as well. So thank you so much. Bye y'all. Bye. Bye.